Welcome to the wrap-up episode of Season 2 of Historical Homicide. As always, I'm your host, Christina Bentley. Today, I'm going to share with you extra information from each of our murderous tales this season. I can't wait to share these fun facts with you. I've been collecting them all season and writing them down just to share them in this episode. But before I delve into the details today, I want to say thank you. A huge Thank you, actually. This season has been a labor of love. And honestly, I wasn't sure if it was going to happen at all. My family suffered a sudden and devastating loss this summer, a loss that changed the trajectory of our lives and of the show. Never having dealt with a sudden and unexpected death of a loved one, I wasn't sure how to navigate through, right? I mean, to trudge on, to write... That hasn't come easily to me this season, but I feel that I've gained a new perspective into these homicides, a view that has shaped the tenor and tone of these episodes. So truly a huge heartfelt thank you for listening, for your constant support, for your enthusiasm, and your interest has been, it's been immensely meaningful. All right, I'll get past my mushy stuff. Let's get into the details of our stories. All right, episode one, George Klinger. In the first episode of this season, we meet George Klinger, a taxicab driver in downtown Jamestown, New York. George is a young man, 23 years old, newly married, looking to make money and improve his life, only to be killed by two con men out of Cleveland, Ohio. There are a few interesting things that stuck out to me while investigating this killing. The trolley station in Lakewood, New York, used to be where the old Beechwood building stands today. And I believe the murder took place in a field around where Big Tree Soft Serve Ice Cream Shop is. Also, the Telling Houston boys, who were originally accused in this case, they were held in Mayville Jail simply because they loosely fit the description of the possible killers. Now, in 1920, no evidence was required to hold them, and after the lack of information and case against them, they were let go. But I do feel badly for them. You know, two boys with no criminal history, 14 and 16 years old, held in jail. That's wild. Let's see. The killers, Edward Persons and Harry Wilson. The way they were caught, it floors me, okay? I mean, simply because Harry talked. If he didn't say where they had been and where they were from, this would probably still be an unsolved case. But I think we can all agree that we're grateful that he spoke. I truly believe that with the lack of forensic evidence at that time, I mean, they didn't have that technology, if Harry didn't speak up, then this would still be unsolved. But not only that, I found out so much more about the public transit system in Jamestown area and Chautauqua County in general during this time. There's a lot to be said for the way the trolleys moved. I mean, there was a trolley that went all the way out to Westfield from Jamestown. You connected on the different trolleys. We used to have a really great infrastructure here of trolley systems and public public transit. It would be cool to see that come back, but, uh, but I found that to be quite interesting. 
And now on to the saga of season two, episodes two and three, Vendettas part one and two. So this saga would not have happened at all without a suggestion from Hugh Golden. Now, Hugh is the director of the Lakeview Cemetery in Jamestown, New York. So Hugh, I got to talk about him for a few seconds here. He is one of the kindest people in the world. He graciously took time out of his schedule to meet with me this summer, and he understood what I had to delay our meeting due to family tragedy. I mean, he has a really cool story, too. When he first started working as the director of the cemetery, he had what can only be described as a freak accident. I gotta tell you more, don't I? Yeah, no, I can't leave you in the dark here. Here it goes. I believe he was prepping the cemetery for the Saints and Sinners Halloween Tour. That's an event put on by the Fenton Historical Society. The groundskeeper decided to leave early for the day, and Hugh went around to help clean the mausoleums. When he came to Governor Fenton's mausoleum... You know what? I'm getting ahead of myself. This is like a story within a story. Let's talk about mausoleums for a second, okay? Some mausoleums have just one main floor, but others have basements. It's essentially a crypt. So with Governor Fenton's mausoleum, his has a crypt that can be accessed two ways. One is a spiral staircase going down into the crypt. The other is a removable, a heavy removable marble slab in the floor. The latter, the marble slab, that's used primarily to lower caskets into the crypt, and it's located at the immediate entrance into the mausoleum. Okay, so when Hugh came to the Iron Gate entrance of the mausoleum, he used a key to unlock the padlock and took a step inside. What he didn't realize was that the marble slab that had been there at some point was moved, and he fell down into the crypt and landed on his head and neck. It's quite the drop. The groundskeeper, who had decided to leave early that day, he actually stayed a little longer than he intended, and it's a really good thing. He spotted Hugh's car up by Fenton's mausoleum, but didn't see Hugh, which he found to be odd. Right Upon further inspection, he found Hugh at the bottom of the crypt and was able to get him emergency care. And as it turns out, I mean, Hugh could have died in there. He broke his neck and survived to tell the tale. And I'm so glad he did. Not only is he amazingly kind, he's quite the treasure trove of fascinating information. So when he suggested Frank Melisi's name to me, I knew I need to look into it, which led me to Vendetta. The Vendetta episodes were difficult simply because of the amount of information and deciphering involved. Each of these mobsters has so many names and aliases, and no one spoke to the police or the press in a straightforward fashion. Everything is implied and drawn out, and the implications of these interviews and statements were arduous to sort through. I truly had to put on my investigatory hat to extract this lengthy tale. And there's even more to tell, more research that I have yet to do. So you may hear a continuation of Vendetta in the next season. And just for those of you who are curious, 
Hugh Golden's fine. He made a full recovery. He's doing quite well. And if you have any questions about the cemetery, Lakeview Cemetery, or your final wishes, that kind of thing, there's no better person to talk to than Hugh Golden and his assistant, Lori. She works in the office. Both of them were incredibly kind to me. They had been collecting information for me before I even called. They had been keeping a case file of old and odd, strange things that had happened and unsolved deaths and that kind of thing. So I highly, highly recommend talking with them for your end-of-life needs. And speaking of -of end-of-life matters, this next story goes beyond. Episode 4, Haunted. Ooh. You know, one of the odd things about me as a person is that I don't jump scare. Also, that's not a challenge. I mean, don't try. You'll just be disappointed. I mean, I have no visible tell, okay? No outward sign that I've been startled. I feel it internally, that rush of adrenaline, that gasping panic, but on the outside, no one can see my fear. Whether it's a blessing or a curse remains to be seen, but I can tell you that 100% without a doubt, this episode really gave me the heebie-jeebies. I entitled the episode Haunted for many reasons, but especially for the lingering, unsettling feelings it left behind. Do you believe in ghosts or maybe energy, good or bad, that leaves traces? This story about Joseph Damon, right? He kills his wife with a fire poker. But that's not where it ends. That's just the beginning, which is, you know, completely unsettling. The way Joseph Damon was hung for his crime They measured the rope. The sheriff measured the rope incorrectly the first time. So, right, he gets hung, but doesn't stick, right? He falls through and then he gets back up and they have to hang him again. He has to wait for them to remeasure the rope and then get hung again. Ugh, ugh, just icky. I mean, several people saw the same thing too after he died. Joseph Damon with a fire poker. Was it a coincidental thing? Was the Damon trial in everyone's mind and many people just read into things that they saw? Did they all see the same thing? The voices of Joseph and his wife, Elmira, they were heard arguing right after their deaths in their old home by Joseph, his parents, by the boys that were playing by the quarry, by other passersby. It's hard to refute several unrelated claims. And I have to say, recording this episode came right at the busiest time of the year for me and my family. Halloween is the kickoff to our holiday season. As you can imagine, I love Halloween. And I was pressed for time. I decided to tuck my children into bed and record downstairs at night in my log cabin basement. It was late at night. Mm, The odd and unsettling is kind of my thing. But the air was a little too still, the strangeness too palpable. I consider myself a strong, independent woman. I reminded myself of that as I ran up the stairs and asked my husband to come downstairs and silently sit next to me as I recorded the episode. He was surprised at my request, and he obliged. He hadn't heard any of this before. And as I recorded, he kept staring at me with wide eyes and incredulous looks, especially at the height of all the dramatic bits. One thing I found interesting was Martin and Joseph's work with gravestones, right? It's kind of uncanny. Martin was known for his exceptional work with ornate gravestones. 
He's best known for Thomas Abel's gravestone in Fredonia, and I haven't taken a trip up to Fredonia to find it. Assuming it's still around, I don't know. I mean, the last thing I heard was that it was in dire need of repair and restoration. So many of the old picturesque headstones in the county are the work of Martin Damon. In fact, there are trails and plaques in Mayville that detail the Damon event. So I still have some more investigating to do on this case. Which brings us to episode five, Secrets. This episode has many unanswered questions. David Wilds, the man found dead in his shed in Ripley. Hmm, from what I understand about David, his reputation and the company he kept were not on the up and up. In short, he seems shady and questionable. I mean, he lost control and punched his father-in-law, right? And he frequently spent time with homeless, transient people. But the biggest takeaway from this case, what I don't understand, is why there was a man impersonating an Erie, Pennsylvania police detective, right? Who was this mystery man? Why was he so invested in David's Wilde's case? Why was he trying so hard to convict the, what they called in the paper, the demented tramp, Aaron Lick from Edinburgh? I mean, did the guy who got killed by the train, the other guy, did he actually kill David Wilds before he met his own demise? All these things we'll probably never know. But what we do know is that the community was shaken by this murder, mostly because it occurred only 12 years after the unsolved Shearman murders. Everyone was on edge in the county and the sheriff's department, the other police departments, right? They didn't want a similar murder. Someone bludgeoned to death, mainly blows to the head, right? They didn't want this to haunt the community conscience, but it did. And David's wild, David Wilde's body is still buried at the Ripley Cemetery. All right, episode six, Consequences. This is the last murder episode of season two. And right when I was in the middle of researching it, I had done some preliminary research. I have a method, right? And I had done my research on one of the sites that has the most information. It's a a main site that I use. And right when I was finishing up this episode, that site went down for maintenance, completely unannounced, went down for maintenance for 10 days, which, you know, I panicked. But that was a really good exercise for me to use other forms of information and sources. So I was actually pretty grateful that the main site went down because it allowed me to find out more about this case than I probably would have otherwise. So this was the Edward Burnett and Jack Doherty case. Essentially, both of these guys were lazy freeloaders. Uh, Neither one of them had a job. They just lived off their girlfriend's income and they weren't even good boyfriends. Okay. I mean, they, they were, their girlfriends were madams right, for these um, houses of ill repute. I like that name. And uh, they just lived off of their girlfriends, what they made. So they were two guys with way too much time on their hands getting into trouble. And Edward Burnett ends up shooting Jack Doherty, right? And he dies a few weeks later. So after the trial, Stella, Jack Doherty's girlfriend, she moved her disorderly house from Dunkirk to Salamanca, Even though her business was illegal, the police in Dunkirk hadn't bothered her before. They just kind of turned a blind eye to what was going on. But with such a high-profile case, she moved the business to stay 
on the down low, right? She was laying low. Cataraugus County, where Salamanca is located, was not as hospitable to her as Dunkirk had been. When the county judge, Judge Thrasher, what a cool name, Judge Thrasher, when he heard of the establishment she had set up in Salamanca, she was tried by the county grand jury. She pled guilty. She was fined $300 for having this illegal disorderly house. She was also sentenced to 60 days in jail. She was used as an example to ward off other women who would consider setting up similar establishments. I believe she also had another trial for her um, illegal selling of liquor. So yeah, they really, they strung Stella up. They they really uh, put the screws to her. And that's a brief summary of season two. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my sponsors for this season. In fact, this season wouldn't have been possible without them. A huge thank you to the Aesthetic House, Evolution Spin Studio, Secret Undisclosed Location, Riders Cup Coffee, Memory Lane Country Shop, and Samantha Randall, the author of Charlie Ryan's Greatest Adventure. If you or someone you know is interested in a sponsorship for season three, yes, I'll be back with another season. I can be reached on Instagram at Historical Homicide. So on that note, I'm proud to announce season three of Historical Homicide will debut mid-March. Check the Instagram page for updates and info. Thank you, dear listeners, for tuning into season two. I hope you've had as much fun and intrigue as I've had. I can't wait to bring you more tales next season. But in the meantime, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season with those you love most. Try not to kill each other. From all of us here at Historical Homicide. Oh, kids, did you did you want to say something? Happy holidays! And, and stay morbidly curious. Ooh, lovely. Hope you be nice and not be naughty. Just be good and you will get all some presents. Well, let's hope so. Thank you. Thank you, kids. Thank you, everyone. Happy holidays and stay morbidly curious. Mm-hmm.